بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد we express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings upon the Prophet may peace be upon him so so uh, can someone nod just let me know you can hear me yeah okay actually uh, Malika is the only one actually showing her face unlike all the rest of you people anyway so so continuing our exploration of these metaphors that we find that we have in the Quran, Corona face. I'm not even asked what that means. Okay, uh, so we explored the first metaphor of the, the man kindling the fire, and so now looking at this next one, Ayah 19. So, so their likeness, as mentioned up here, their example. And they, we said, were essentially the hypocrites and perhaps also the kafirs. Uh, their likeness is like a rainstorm from the sky, which in with is darkness, actually it's darknesses, <coughs> excuse me, vulumat. Darkness, thunder, lightning. They put their fingers in their ears against the thunderclaps in dread of death. But Allah is surrounding the the coffers. Okay, so so let's uh, again. We said that the key to to translating a metaphor is to first take it step by step, all the different pieces, and then put them together. So, trusty whiteboard right here. Okay, so this is I uh, to nineteen. So we have a rainstorm. This is now our context. In the previous ayah, the context was you had this man killing a fire. And, and there is darknesses. Thunder and lightning. Right? So pretty vivid. I think you can imagine the, 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 the setting. And then what do they do? They stick their fingers in their ears. Because of this dread of death, And then it says, Allah surrounds the coffers. Okay. So <clears throat> a lot of when the Quran is speaking about people and belief in non-belief, it is often speaking more from the perspective of behavior and less from the perspective of theology, okay? Meaning you believe X, Y, Z, therefore you're a believer. You believe X, Y, Z, therefore you're a kafir. The Quran doesn't seem to work that way as much. It seems to focus much more on what people do, what people say, and, and then within that, what people's intentions are. So here, uh, describe this behavior. Uh, when they're putting their fingers in their ears, why are they doing that? What would be the, the possible reasons for sticking fingers in their ears? You're in the middle of a rainstorm. There's thunder and lightning, and then these people go like this. What are they doing? 
To block out the sound? Yeah, to block out the sound of thunder. Can thunder hurt you? Anyone? Potentially. I'm sorry? Potentially. Uh, I think I don't think thunder can hurt you. Uh, lightning can hurt you. Meaning if anything, their focus should be on what can hurt them, so they should go like this. Okay. There, now the lightning is gone. Uh, but they're terrified by the sound of the thunder and they're blocking that out. And so now the problem, uh, the problem is solved. Yeah, so Sylvester is saying it sounds like it can hurt you. Absolutely. But I wonder, you know, this is something anyone, if you want to Google it for us, if anyone in the history of, of, of the world has ever gotten hurt by thunder. You know? And so, so one point to think about is that they're afraid of something that cannot hurt them. And, and so overall, this metaphor relates to the whole issue of fear. And so what is the core fear of these people? It's the core fear is a fear of death. That's at the core. Now, if you think back to some of the analogies we made uh, over the course of this course, we said that the analogy of gratitude is what? Anybody remember? Gratitude is like water. Anger is like fire. And fear behaves sort of like lightning. And I'll explain the third one, I'll review the, the first two, that in your heart, your default from the perspective of gratitude and anger, your default is going to be one more than the other. And either the water of the gratitude is going to keep the fire of anger extinguished, or the fire of anger is going to evaporate the water of gratitude. And in that context, we are speaking of anger as being synonymous with ingratitude. Which is the pathway to things like jealousy, envy, and such. And so in your default of those two, one is going to be more prominent than the other. The goal is to make gratitude more and more prominent to extinguish the anger. Now there is, we discussed way back then, there is a space for righteous anger like when a wrong is being committed against someone else, that that might be a space for righteous anger. Whereas otherwise, most anger is, is often destructive and thus self-destructive. So fear uh, is like lightning. And, and a way to think about that is when you have a lightning bolt shooting from the sky, you have no idea where it's going to go. You know it's going to go from the sky down and then bounce back up, but it's it can go in any any particular direction, and that is how fear operates. And so here, the core fear of of the hypocrite, and then in, and by extension of the coffers, is this fear of death. <laughs> and as a result, as a consequence. They'll have irrational fears of other things. And by uh, irrational fears, what I'm saying here is that they fear things that they don't need to fear, like thunder. Anything that can make me feel like it's bringing me closer to my death will be something that they fear. And this is part of the nature of, of how fear operates. So <clears throat> what would be appropriate in terms of fear 
So these would be fear goals. I don't know if in your life you've ever been told, here's some goals you should have regarding fear. Uh, let's write this more neatly. So, okay, so you might start with fearing things that cannot hurt you. And from there, we want to do what? You want to fear things that can hurt you. And then where do you want to go from there? Fearing the one who controls it all. meaning fearing Allah. That's the evolution I want to have. Now, <clears throat> let's talk, um, in fact, uh, no, let's continue with this line of, of, of thinking. So the core fear is a fear of death. From the perspective of a true believer, meaning the person of taqwa, we're saying the person of taqwa has reached this point where their fear is over uh, things that they can control them. But let's take a step back about these things that can or cannot hurt me. Uh, simple question, and be honest, uh, we're, all, we're all friends here. How many of you are afraid of spiders? And by spiders, I think most of you are somewhere in the United States. So like those little tiny spiders we have in, in uh, like Chicago, so, so it's barely even, you know, a little bit bigger than the thumb. Uh, who wants to admit that you're afraid of spiders? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. <laughs> Not even a question. Okay, so my sister is afraid of anything that crawls or flies. Uh, the B family, there's like 50 sisters in that family, so I don't know if you're referring to anybody in particular. For the sake of this class's question, I'll admit. <laughs> So Hadil is the one who fears everything. That's not sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Okay, so Asma, uh, uh, Asna, in your case, when do you fear spiders and when do you not? Like uh, what, what, would cause the, what would cause you to fear and not, or not fear? Okay, so if a spider is running at you, okay, then, <laughs> then you get scared. You know, I feel like I have to change the question. Is anybody here not afraid of spiders? Wait, so Dominion, you're saying you are not afraid of spiders. Seriously? You're not afraid of spiders? Seriously? No. Unless they're big. I'm, okay. I'm not afraid of spiders, all, uh, except for um, black widows. I don't even know what a black widow looks like, except from, like, movies. So, like, okay, so let's say, <laughs> okay, so let's say the spider's the size of, of your eye. Wait, no, no, wait. Yeah, I am afraid of spiders. There are there are spiders called, uh, I think, like the bird killer or something that's about the size of a dinner plate. Okay, all right. Any human being, if a spider is this big, <laughs> anybody should be afraid of that. Okay? I'm yeah. afraid just thinking about a spider that big. <laughs> I'm talking about those little tiny things. Oh, no, I'm the, those things don't bother me. They don't bother you at all. Not so at you're all. walking into the shower and you see one of those things crawling up your leg. Not a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a problem. Okay. What about what about silverfish? Are you afraid of silverfish? You know what that is? No, I Google don't. it. All right, yeah. boss, hold on. Yeah, and silverfish. silverfish are often like this big. Sana is saying yes. You're afraid of spiders, or you're afraid of silverfish? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm not messing with that. Right. Okay. So why is it that spiders or silverfish are so scary? Okay. Again, tarantulas are usually like, like big, you know, uh, what's, what is it that's so scary about them? Oh, I feel like they can violate me. It's <laughs> nice formal language. I have partaken of discussion about this and I've concluded that this creature can violate my, my well-being. Yeah. <laughs> So, 
Okay, I suppose they can be scary because of the image they have. Um, yeah, yeah. Are they, are they, what does that mean? Like gangs or something? Like, you know, what do they do? <laughs> They'll crawl into crevices. Yeah. <laughs> How about they're scary because we see all those like videos of someone waking up with a spider laying eggs in their face or something. And there's like spiders crawling out of their faces. <laughs> Okay, so so That's exactly why I stopped watching horror But what kind of videos do you watch? I watch videos of babies laughing, <laughs> or babies on what's that uh, on Roombas? Watch those videos instead of these. Oh. Yeah. So so Melika, how did you feel about the spider going going near you? Scary, yeah. One time I was I was uh, teaching this lesson uh, at uh, at Loyola, and and students were had convinced themselves, all right, we're not afraid of spiders. And, and suddenly a student screamed. I don't remember if it was a man or a woman, and it was the parting of the Red Sea because this little tiny spider had, had, had uh, started coming down. So uh, we're conditioned to see the video of the nest of spiders that are disturbed. Okay, that's gross. Or have you, oh, wait, wait. Uh, we're conditioned to see what's normal and tiny crawling things are not something we see every day. I think that's part of it. We do have an idea of what is normal and what is cute. Son is saying, have you seen the video of the nest of spiders that are disturbed? No, thanks. Why, why would I want to do that? <laughs> so, so uh, I think you've all, uh, or actually, no, you're all a bunch of young punks. Uh, I don't know how many of you have seen the movie E.T. So when Steven Spielberg was designing E.T., what did he do? He gave E.T. these big blue eyes. So therefore, E.T. would look really, really cute. So I would suggest part of the reason that spiders are so are, are frightening for so many people is for starters, they don't seem to have normal eyes. And thus, you can't see where they're gonna go, right? They don't have normal eyes, which already makes them scary. And then on top of that, you can't see where they're gonna go. But they got all these little, you know, 50 billion legs that adds to a level of unpredictability. So Steve is saying, <clears throat> I think there are gen uh, different levels of fear that create the fight or flight response. Yeah, I agree. In general, not too afraid, but I do react with them with a fight response to squash them. Okay, yeah, that, that's also fair, right? That, okay, if one of us is gonna die, it's gonna be you, spider. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I do think that part of it is just the, the appearance of the spiders, and part of it is the unpredictability of, of, of spiders as well. Now imagine, if you if the spider is crawling towards you and you look closely and it has fangs, you know, I mean that would probably make it even even more frightening, right? You know, <laughs> or imagine if the spider starts saying no, he starts talking to you. Okay, so, <laughs> I think I've, I've opened the door to many people in their deepest darkest fears of spiders. So what we're suggesting here. <clears throat> is that part of fear, and this is actually uh, even related to Steve's point, part of fear is physiology. Yeah. And exactly this point of fight or flight, or fight or flight, or fight, flight, or freeze, uh, there's an aspect of your fear that's just purely a survival instinct. And it would be not that different if you're walking and then somebody just jumps in front of you and immediately you go into your physiological instinct. And so some of that you cannot control, but then some of fear is also just irrational mental. And that's the part that we're speaking about here. And, and so the goal is at least to be afraid of something. If you're gonna be afraid of something, be afraid of something that can hurt you. With a spider, you may not know in that moment depending upon how much experience you've had with spiders. Uh, if you, uh, I think it was Sylvester that talked about just the, you know, how often do we see them or not. If you see spiders all the time, then you're probably just gonna reach a point where you're just not afraid of them anymore. They're just commonplace because you're gonna see that they don't, they don't mess around with you. You know, when I was a kid and we'd go to, to Karachi, uh, I'd be terrified by these lizards, right? And they'd be, and this is like, this is the small Florida version of lizards. These things would just be super long, you know. And I mean, if I waited around, 
uh, I'd probably see that they didn't mess around with you. But still, when you're coming from, from Chicagoland and you see these lizards running free, you know, I found myself thinking, what kind of people are these? Anyway, so, so the point is, yeah, that uh, uh, if, you, if it became commonplace, it would probably not be as scary. But addressing it from the perspective of fear, if you have knowledge that it cannot hurt you, then you're going to focus on things that can hurt you. But something like thunder is so powerful that I think to some degree, it does automatically cause a fight or flight response for many people. Even if it's for a split second, it just because of the bang of thunder, you know. So <clears throat> when you're fearing death, or no, no, no. So, so another point about fear is that when you're fearing something, you run away from it. When you're fearing Allah, you run to Allah. Okay. And so this is also the fascinating thing about, about how, you know, how fear operates. So naturally, fear is compelling me to save myself, and thus I run away from it. But if I can transform more and more of my fears to becoming fear of God, then the natural consequence is to run to God. Because what's the other option? You can't run away from God. And so that's part of the goal here. Part of the goal is to transform our fear to fear of Allah. Now, how do we do this? Uh, one aspect is through rational thought. As a foundation, meaning to go from Fearing things that can't hurt me to fearing things that can hurt me. Some of that requires just some very deep reflection. Okay, why am I afraid of this thing that cannot hurt me? However, to go from fear of things that can hurt me to fearing Allah, it's a combination of rational thought. plus, but especially, increased obedience. And the rational thought aspect here is more knowledge of God. So, <clears throat> so a point that I've been repeating throughout the whole course of this course is that so much of the Quran is focused on your thinking. Right, very little of the Quran is actually saying, do this, don't do this. Tiny percentage of it, not even 10%. Most of the Quran is saying, look, here's how reality operates. Here's how to understand reality. And so part of what the Quran is saying is that the day of judgment is a reality. It is more real than the fact of you and I sitting here. That the divine is more real than, than you and I are. As real as I am, the divine is more real that the divine is true reality. And so as I can internalize that more, then the natural consequence should be that I'm trying to get closer to Allah. Okay. That is increasing my fear of Allah, but it is also increasing my hope in Allah as well. Okay. So rational thought focused on Allah and reality. And we've already made this point before that the key to developing, the key to developing certainty is increased obedience, increased ibadah. That's the key to developing certainty. Okay, so have we talked about the relationship between fear and hope? I don't think we've talked about that here. So at some point, like all the classes start merging into each other. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's okay. Go ahead, uh, Dominion. Say what you're oh, saying. well, yeah, that was going to be a question. So we run away from fear, right? So fear of things that can harm us. Yeah. Uh, and we run towards God, but he can also harm us. Mm -hmm. Why aren't we running away from him? And the only thing I could think of is that he's, he's the one that offers us hope. 
-hmm. Well, okay. uh, I'd say from a rational perspective, I'd agree. Uh, I'd say uh, from, or from an emotional perspective, I'd agree. But uh, where would you run if you're running away from God? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, there's no place to run, right? So, in my so, imagination, probably. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, if you're to open up, it's around Surah 29, Ankabut, somewhere around there. There's basically a passage near the beginning of the Surah that, des that describes what we're speaking of here is the people of Taqwa versus the Kafirs. And there it's saying the people of Taqwa are, are struggling, striving to see the face of God, whereas the people of Kufr are running away from God. And it's basically speaking of that as a nonsensical practice. Okay, so a point to think about. Well, I just wanted to make a point that uh, go for it. you could also think of it as like your parent, like you know your parents are gonna like punish you for doing something bad, right? But like, it's also your parents that you go for like for comfort and love and like, huh. like that. Uh, that was very helpful. Yeah, my mom had me very scared one, one day from school because I acted up on the bus. And she said, okay, I'll just wait till you get home. And I knew what that meant. So when I got dropped off at the bus stop, I walked extremely slow back home. Very slow. Yes, that, that would be a good example. Okay, so a point to think about is that fear has hope built into it. Hope has fear built into it. And think about what we're saying. That if I fear something, I don't know why I'm using my hands. Okay, if I fear something, uh, then I'm saying, I don't want this to happen. Yeah. Uh, meaning I hope it will not happen, but I fear it will happen. If I hope for something, I hope that this will happen, but I fear it will not happen. Yeah. Or if I don't want something to happen, I fear it'll happen, but I hope it will not. Or if I hope something won't happen, right? So if Dominion is hoping he would not get beaten by his mother, <laughs> he is hoping it does not happen, he fears that it will happen. Yeah. And so, so think of this as a spectrum. At one end, we have increasing hope. At the other end, we have increasing fear. And so depending upon whatever the issue is, wherever you are on the spectrum, you have X amount of fear and X amount of hope. So hope has fear built into it. Fear has hope built into it. What would you call hope that has absolutely no fear? Delusion, possibly. I'm going to call it certainty. Faith. Oh, yeah. Oh, what were you saying, Summer? Oh, no, Steve was saying faith. But I thought Dominion wrote that down, too. Mm-hmm. I would say, so, so I would say that uh, faith would still have fear in it. And so certainty, what would you call fear that has absolutely no hope in it? What was the other part of um, distrust? Fear that yeah. has no insecurity. So I'd say all of these are part of that as well as paranoia, skepticism, despair. meaning no hope whatsoever. So certainty is no fear whatsoever, and then is, uh, despair is no hope whatsoever. Good. Now, <laughs> three scenarios. To think about. And the question is how much hope or fear should I have uh, for each of these? So, what Allah has prepared for my future in this world. Okay. How I respond to what Allah gives me. And 
my afterlife. So what I'm asking here is when I look at my future in terms of what Allah has prepared for me in terms of struggles, in terms of ease, uh, and in other tests, should my default be more fear or should my default be more hope? What do you think? I think hope. Yeah. I mean, when we speak of Allah as being so merciful, then my default should be hope. Okay. It's already a guarantee I'm going to be hit with struggle. Okay. That part is a guarantee. And, but the default should be hope rather than fear. That even when I'm being hit with struggle, I'm not going to be hit with anything I cannot handle. So I'll be given prosperity or I'll be given some sort of ease that naturally we have hope for that. Uh, but even the struggle is not going to be something beyond my capability to address. And thus default should be hope. But what about all the things that Allah Ta'ala is giving me? Should my default be hope or fear in terms of me responding sufficiently? So here I'd say the default should be fear. That the test that Allah is giving me, and remember we spoke about the four plus one tests of obedience, struggle, ease, difficult decisions. And then the fifth is to make up for the first four, which is forgiveness. That, that all these things that Allah Ta'ala is putting before me, am I going to be grateful enough Probably not. Am I going to obey fully? Probably not. Uh, when I'm hit with struggle, am I going to persevere through all those struggles with perseverance and patience and everything? My default should be more fear than hope. Should still include hope, but my default should be more fear than hope. What about my afterlife? So I'm not talking about the day of judgment itself. The day of judgment is going to be so, so awe-inspiring and terrifying that no one's going to care about anyone else. The event of the day of judgment. But what about my consequences on the day of judgment? Should I have more fear or hope? What do you all think? For this, it would be both. So a balance of fear and hope. The idea being that if I were to find out only one person in all of creation is going to hell, I should be afraid that that's me. And if I were to find out that only one person is going to paradise out of all of creation, I should have the hope that that's me. So the state of taqwa is it, when I think of my future in this world, what Allah Ta'ala has planned for me. I mean, even think about it right now, think of what a period of unknown we're in uh, uh, with, this, uh, with this pandemic. My default should be more hope than fear. But then how do I respond? Am I gonna respond sufficiently? My default should be more fear than hope. Still, it should have hope in it. But regarding my afterlife, I cannot negate all of the good that I've done, and I also cannot ignore all the bad that I've done. So what is the trick of shaitan? What is the trick of the devil? We haven't even yet talked about the devil. That won't get until, we won't get to there until ayah 30, uh, inshallah. But uh, what is the devil's trick? It's basically the opposite of all of these. So in terms of my future, what does he do? He threatens me with poverty. He wants me to be afraid of what Allah has in store for me. So among the most common issues that undergrads come to me with, one of the biggest ones is anxiety, right? Anxiety about the future. You know, what's going to happen? Am I going to, am I going to get uh, accepted in such and such school? Am I going to be loved? Am I going to, you know, is, uh, am I going to lose my parents? So far and so on, assuming those things have not happened. And so, so the devil's goal one of his goals 
is to have you is to get you to have more fear than hope about your future to the point that you have despair about your future and then regarding your response yeah don't worry about it okay Allah's most merciful Allah's forgiving you're doing great to have far more hope than fear and then in terms of your afterlife it's to make one or the other more excessive okay to give you such a level of fear that you feel like you're doomed on the day of judgment, that there's no hope and, and why even try? Or, yeah, you don't even need to worry about it. Okay. And so what do you do regarding, especially category number three, meaning your day of judgment? If you feel like you have so much fear, then say something small like Alhamdulillah. You know, subhanAllah, some praise of the divine, blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Because what have you just done in that moment? You've just improved your afterlife. Right? I give, you know, this common example so many times. Just from a reward perspective, what is the reward for saying subhanAllah once? Anybody know? If you say subhanAllah once, a tree is planted for you in paradise whose circumference is so large that it would take a thoroughbred racehorse 60 years to run across or to, to do the full circumference. Yeah. And so the numbers themselves, you know, become sort of secondary, uh, but, you know, try to picture how big that horse is. So if you were to imagine a map of Chicago, the base of the tree would be the size of Chicago for saying one subhanAllah. And I've now said a couple. Some of you are now saying, wow, subhanAllah, that's so big. Okay. So, so the point is that uh, when you are feeling something closer to despair about your afterlife, then immediately uh, cancel it out by doing good. And the easiest good is to do good with your tongue. Likewise, if you find yourself not caring about your afterlife, meaning you find yourself thinking, yeah, I'm gonna to go to paradise, I got nothing to worry about, or not even thinking about it. Then you have to do the inverse, which is to remember your sins and seek forgiveness for them. Because one of the fascinating things is that we are taught about how immense the rewards are, right? If you do a good deed, if you intend to do a good deed and you do it, you get rewarded 10 to 700 times. That's outside of Ramadan. Ramadan, everything becomes exponential. And especially on Laylatul Qadr, then it just, it's off the charts. You know, or if you intend to do a bad deed, but you stop yourself, then you get rewarded for a good, so forth and so on. But we don't know the actual values of each of the different actions because they don't correspond to how much effort uh, they, they take. So, so the point being that, uh, that these are the defaults we should have regarding fear and hope in terms of our future and this life and the next life and the devil is going to work to get us to fall into the opposites of each of these okay so so the last few points regarding this this metaphor uh so allah surrounds the kafirs uh a point to think about here just to give you an idea of, of how vivid this, uh, uh, it's like, think of the ocean surrounding an island. It's surrounding that much. Okay. And so essentially, what are we saying? That the kafirs might try to keep Allah out of their heart, but they're still going to be surrounded by Allah. So the person of taqwa is trying to embrace Allah in their heart. And they actually want to be surrounded by Allah. Okay. I mean, the kafirs ultimately cannot escape God, even if they can try to escape God in their own hearts. Okay, with that, um, uh, any questions about anything, anything at all? Not a question, but the last slide that you were talking about, the fear and hope. Mm -hmm. um, but I know, Sapal, I always think about the devil as shaitan, as the evil psychologist. Like he knows where people are at and tries to like 
take them further away. Uh, but with the last point, I like what you said with like, if somebody has more of the fear to, you know, do some good deeds and just be aware of the reward of it. And, and I know like a person's mental health and spirituality can be connected, but I know with some clients, um, it really helps to even have them reflect on Allah's names. Like if they're more fearful to reflect on Allah's name, like the most compassionate, the most forgiving, mm-hmm. um, or even the other way, if they're too hopeful to kind of know that Allah is all seeing, all knowing, um, just to kind of be mindful of those aspects to be like more balanced. Yeah, I, I think from from a therapy perspective, I, I'd agree wholeheartedly with you, right? So, so you know, building on the point you're making about the attributes of Allah uh, that we mentioned, that there's the attributes of Jamal and the attributes of Jalal, so the attributes of beauty, mercy, the attributes uh, versus the attributes of power and majesty, and I think that's a very, very wonderful point you know, that you use the you you, you help the, the person focus on the appropriate attribute according to what they need. I think that's a nice one point, mashallah. Any other questions, thoughts? Uh, Omar, I've always, I think what Sama just said was very helpful. Um, however, I've always had a very difficult time um, internalizing fear vis-a-vis God. And and I just don't, under, I just cannot get myself to be fear of, be afraid of somebody who's all merciful. And especially if that's how, I've experienced that being. So I really find it very hard. Um, you know, when you sort of made that jump from, you know, fearing things that can hurt you and then leading that to fearing the one who controls it all. So I find that sort of shift or that leap rather difficult to absorb or understand. Okay. Um, but it sustained you this far, right? So, inshallah, you know. I would suggest um, for for your own introspection, others who are in the same boat, is then to to decide how does that play out when I look at my own afterlife. It's all hope, even there. It's all hope. Interesting, interesting. For that, uh, I would suggest to try to inject some fear in it. It's good, <laughs> absolutely, to have hope. There's this person who's going to be facing a law on the day of judgment, and is going to be given the sentence. And, and then a lot in this person is going to have this, this disappointed face. And, and then he's going to be asked, why, why do you look like this? And the person is going to say, I was relying upon Allah's Rahmah. And then that person is going to be given paradise. Right. So, so I'd say as a default, it's a good thing, but maybe there might be some need to inject some fear in there somewhere. Inshallah. Any other questions or thoughts? So, oh, I'll let the... Yeah, go for it, Dominion, and I'll, and I'll read also. Okay. Um, so one and two, the, if those are switched, then that was a, a result from uh, shaitan. So <clears throat> meaning if I have more fear about my, my you know, what is ahead sure. of me in the dunya, mm-hmm. and I have more hope uh, in terms of how I respond, I'm saying that's essentially what shaitan is trying to get you to do. Meaning, if I have more fear, um, I still have hope, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so if I have more hope, I still have fear. So it's not that you're doing something wrong, but the point is that the devil wants you to reach a point of despair regarding what God has in store for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what else would, how would despair manifest then? You're going to just be full of paranoia. And, and so if you have more fear than hope, uh, that's not wrong, but I'm saying the, the the level to strive for is to have more hope than fear in terms of what Allah has in store for your future. Okay. Like I mean, so think about it from a different perspective. Uh, so uh, it has a lot of inappropriate language, but but Dave Chappelle has this this short bit you can find on YouTube mm-hmm. about the, that whole philosophy of the secret, the law of attraction, and the idea of the secret is that you just you know imagine something and then the forces of the universe will will make it happen right before your eyes and so using a couple of colorful world words he he says okay go tell that to someone who's in a famine okay <laughs> just just imagine thanksgiving dinner okay it's not going to suddenly appear so yeah. the point is that i can't walk up to somebody who's who's in the middle 
of of chaos and say, oh, you just need to have more hope. Mm-hmm. Right? Because they might need to have fear for the purposes of survival. But if you're in a state, if you're in, a, in an environment where you have the time to actually reflect on these things and you have the brain space to, for, to reflect on these things, then I suggest you try to have more hope than fear. Do you think that it is a psychological disposition of the person if they see God more as a fear mongerer than a person who saves? I mean, uh, I think it is more nurture than nature. You know? mm. And the nurture can be from what's taking place inside the house or outside the house. Uh, uh, but I think it is more nurture than nature. Okay. And then, so let me catch up. So, Sheikh Omar, can you comment on how, if the rewards for even small actions are so much and multiplied, how do some people, even believers, still end up with more evil deeds and good deeds? Yeah, I think this is a very, very important point. That, that you know, when we do the math, it seems as though reward is you. Everything is 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 tilted so far towards reward and benefit and mercy, and still there are going to be many people who are going to go to hell, right? I think that's even addressed just from the, the beginning of, of the surah by talking about hypocrites. That the fact is that if, you know, Allah is talking about hypocrites and hypocrites are believers on the outside, um, uh, that there are going to be a whole lot of people who are people of belief who are going to go to hell. Um, uh, I think that in itself is frightening as a possibility, but it's right there in the text. You know, um, um, and so yeah, that's uh, I can't. What's the word? Rest on my laurels. That belief alone is not going to send me straight to paradise. You know? We do hope for things like shifa, you know, and we do hope for the mercy from uh, from Allah from all any different way that it's available. But there are going to be believers who are going to go to hell. Uh, so, what is the best treatment for the people who have anxiety about the future or just everything in general? So uh, a couple a couple points. Uh, think back to the diagram that, that I made a couple classes ago where we have the body, the mind, the heart. And, and so, so the, the person who's giving you treatment, part of the goal would be to figure out where is this anxiety being located. But let's just say hypothetically, it's in all uh, aspects. So with anxiety as a physiological condition, uh, the first things, and so I me, mean, I'm not a therapist, and so I only address the rudiments of those things. Uh, the first thing that I'm usually asking the, the student who's coming to my office is, what's your sleeping schedule like? What's your diet like? Because if your sleeping schedule is not stable or is upside down, it's going to amplify the anxiety. Likewise, the diet, you know, is it stable? How healthy is it? Um, the less healthy, the less stable it is. That is also going to amplify the anxiety. And then if you're someone who makes your prayers, then are you making your prayers in intense stress or are you making them in tranquility? And that is something that can either amplify the anxiety, even though you would think prayer is going to, is supposed to calm down the anxiety, or it can especially calm down the anxiety if you're praying slowly and with tranquility and such. And then uh, from a physiological perspective, then I would also suggest, you know, seeing, you know, a therapist about those matters. From a mind perspective, uh, part of it would be to immerse yourself with uh, an understanding of the Quran, looking from the perspective of how everything is balanced in the Quran. Meaning every time you have a mention of hell, right before or after, you can have a mention of heaven and vice versa. You know, there's an email or... I don't know what you young people use now, but there's this, back in the day, there's this email that would go around where people actually counted, you know, how many times the word day is mentioned, how many times the word night is mentioned, so forth and so on. I actually did the data for most of those. Most of those, the numbers were wrong, but the number of times heaven and hell appear are exactly the same amount of times. And, and, uh, and so a point to think about is uh, that we develop these neural pathways and how to think and they become our habits, and then they become our reality. And so part of the challenge for the level of the mind is to change your neural pathways. And so one, ex uh, one exercise would be that gratitude exercise that I gave at the beginning of the course as a foundation for, for, for a lot of this. In the realm of the heart, uh, it would be to increase prostration. 
and to make your prayers slowly. So a lot of times if you're making your daily prayers, we, we our natural tendency it very often is to zip through them and instead do your various acts of worships and your prayers, meaning your, your, your prayers and your supplications, do them nice and slowly and relaxed. Uh, and, and we can talk about other things, but those will be some of the short answers for, 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 for dealing with anxiety. You know. One of the nice things about old age is that you, you, you make it through enough of life where you just realize, yeah, life goes on. You know, whatever, whatever miserable things may happen. Okay, I've already been through all kinds of miserable things. Life goes on. You know, and that's sort of the point you want to get to for a lot of just dealing with life itself. Okay, would not having fear be delusional or lack of understanding of Allah's attributes? Not having fear can possibly be delusion. And, and so a way to think about that is, is how do other people react to your own conduct? So the person who is delusional often does not realize that they're delusional. And to put it in perspective, in the course of this quarantine, uh, I know of four people who have literally claimed to be the Mahdi. Okay. And I might have mentioned one of them earlier in the course, like you, uh, like this one person I'm thinking of, uh, like you have to, uh, I'd almost wish I could show you a before and after photo before this clean cut, super, you know, well-kept guy. And then just now looks like a complete mess and has claimed literally that he is the Mahdi. And then I had another text from, from a student of mine, one of his relatives who has uh, claimed to be, the Messiah, okay, Muslim kid who's claimed to be the Messiah, and he's been telling everybody in his family, I saw in a vision from God, you're going to die on such and such day this way, and so forth and so on. Yeah. Um, and so the point I'm making is in terms of delusion, uh, often when you're in the delusion, you can't tell, but you turn to, but how do the people around you regard you? Uh, Sylvester, why do they come to me first? Um, I don't know, maybe I'm the delusional one. Okay, uh, Rabab, before coming to Salah, it's good to take a few deep breaths, meditate, look over everything. Yeah, I think that that's a that's a, a wonderful point. When you're doing, you know, you know, in terms of like the the textbook, you know, uh, Salah. Okay, my brother's name is Mehdi. Does that count? Okay, nice. You know, when you're when you're doing the first Allah Akbar, you're basically throwing the world behind you, and you're saying for these next few minutes. I don't care about anything except for Allah. My focus on everything else is secondary, except for my relationship with Allah. And relate to what you're saying when you're going through each of the positions. Yeah, take a breath for a moment, get yourself tranquil, and then do the the the, the next part. Absolutely. Yeah. So so Sheikh Omar, you can check. You know, if your brother is um, sane, I'm guessing he probably is. Inshallah. So. Any other questions about anything at all? Okay, well, if there are no other questions, uh, uh, class is scheduled to continue for the rest of the week uh, into the weekend. We can decide what y'all want to do regarding Eid again. We'll probably make that decision on, on Friday or Saturday. I'm game uh, either way. Actually, uh, well, let me see as we get closer because this place might be a madhouse that day with young women running around. Uh, I don't remember we all voting to have class on Eid. I remember only Dominion voting to have, have class on Eid. Okay. There's a polling thing here that takes too much effort for, for me to actually run the poll. I'm too lazy for that. I have a quick question. Yes. Can you um, continuously, what's the word? Push or nag, nag someone to pray? all day, every day? If they don't pray or missed a prayer or you continuously ask, did you pray yet? Have you prayed? Are you going to pray? So you're asking me, can you do that? I mean, yeah, of course you can do that. Are you asking me if, is it uh, beneficial? beneficial? Well, I mean, if it's a family member, then that'd be something you would do. Like mom? <laughs> if, if you're the mom, yeah, then the mom absolutely should be doing that. Yeah. Ooh. Sorry. <laughs> we just got schooled. <laughs> the kids, can we all, I mean, until what age should we be telling kids 
that they should be praying? And at what time, and at what point should we just let it go? So, so the general prescription is you try to ease them in, you know, when they're grade schoolers, right? And then you can, and this is assuming that the parents are praying, right? Um, and so you ease them in, give or take around seven years old. And then, you know, if you've started doing that, then around 10 years old, then you start getting a little bit tough with them. Uh, at what age do you stop if you're a Desi or an Arab mom? Never. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but uh, in terms of what's most effective, it really depends. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so so suppose you have you know hypothetically three kids. They're, they're going to have three different psychologies in terms of what works, what doesn't work. Yeah. But uh, you know, the teaching attributed to to Ali is what that uh, for the first seven years you play with your child. For the next seven years, you discipline and mold your child. And then after that, you become your child's friend. And so by the time your child's about 14, then treat them with the same type of intellect that you treat your friends. So it's already too late for them then. <laughs> okay, if they're, if they're that old, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Any other questions about anything at all? Wait, can you please repeat that um, at, from until seven? What do you do? Age zero to seven, you play with your child. And it's kind of like saying you, you have very few boundaries. Obviously, you're going to have some. Uh, and then from 7 to 14, now you're focusing on molding and disciplining your child. And then uh, when your child's uh, 14, I mean, after that, then you become your child's friend. And, and I mean, I've taught all ages, and I say with experience that 14-year-olds have the intellectual capacity of anybody older. They understand everything, at least at a theoretical level. They don't have the maturity and life experience, but they understand everything. And, and what uh, the mistake that often happens is that the disciplining starts at age zero and continues through seven to 14 and then continues beyond. And uh, at the different phases of life, the child is going to react very differently. You know, another thing to think about is that when you are praising or disciplining your child, there should be a logic in the child's head. I'm being punished for doing this. Yeah. Or I'm being praised for doing this. So if you're just punishing your child and they can't, uh, or if you're yelling at your child, they can't figure out the logic, then they're going to internalize that there's something wrong with me. Yeah. Or if you're praising your child and they don't know what they did to earn the praise, you know, beyond just gushing with love for them, but I'm talking about praise, then the child's going to start thinking, I can do no wrong. And so there should be a logic uh, uh, behind both that the child can comprehend. And that's um, uh, at any age. Okay, any other questions about anything at all? There is no compulsion Islam. Sometimes with tests, one will come to prayer in their life. Sure. Uh, uh, I'm waiting for my children to use that against me. <laughs> hey, Bobby, you can't tell this to me. There is no compulsion. Yeah, and I do think that, uh, I mean, uh, uh, especially in, in our society, uh, you know, like there's no real manual on how to parent. And again, another teaching attributed to Ali is that, um, is that, and I'm forgetting the, the exact wording, but basically even the next generation, the parents uh, have to learn how to raise a child according to their generation, because it's a different world. And he's saying this 1400 years ago. You know, what to think of now. You know. okay. Any other questions? Okay, so I think Melika's uh, suggestion is actually a really good suggestion for, for Saturday and Sunday that we just take the day off for both of those days. And so we'll have class on, sorry, Dominion, we'll have class uh, tomorrow, which is Thursday, Friday, and then we'll reconvene, inshallah, on Monday. Okay, inshallah. So no other questions? We will stop right here, inshallah. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. 
Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. May Allah ta'ala reward you all, inshallah, and we will continue tomorrow. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.